I got the words, I got the tune. I've been rehearsing under the moon, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. I got the place, I got the time. I got a lot of love words that rhyme, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be continuing on my series 20th Century Girls with uh, a look at Shirley Jackson. So this will be seven episodes where we'll cover the Library of America's publication of Shirley Jackson's collected writings. So altogether, we have the lottery, all the stories of the lottery. There's 25 in there. Uh, we'll start looking at that today. Uh, we have... The Haunting of Hill House, we have uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and then we have a series of other stories, including some that weren't published in her lifetime. So I think it's pretty much all of her short stories. And I know she did some other writings, but this is a really nice collection. It's, it's fairly short, but it does really collect the best and most well-known and most important of Shirley Jackson's writings. Well, we have, um, in the last several episodes, been in kind of some treacherous terrain um, for me. It's looking at Mary McCarthy, but particularly Jane Bowles. These are writers that I'm not used to reading, that you know their theme, themes are a little bit uh, different from what I'm used to exploring. I mean, Mary McCarthy is a little bit more straightforward, but Jane Bowles was a really wild ride. Uh, and I really kind of you know had difficulties really making, knowing really what to say about her. I mean, I knew she was interesting and I found her writing rather fascinating, but it's kind of hard to get a grasp on. So um, if you're listening along, you probably heard me struggle a little bit with, with that. But Shirley Jackson's a little bit more a return to what I'm used to. Um, now, she's kind of sometimes known as a horror writer, um, sometimes looked at really as part of the American Gothic movement, the 20th century Gothic movement. Um, you know, but I think most of her writings really tried to get, I mean, certainly Haunting of Hill House is a straight up, I guess, horror novel about all haunted house but you know a lot of her stories especially those in the lottery you know they really deal with this weirdness in life this uncanniness in interpersonal relationships a lot of her characters are are in some sense mentally ill or disturbed or have very weird relationships with people there's a lot of misunderstanding between people a lot of disconnect and i think that's what makes her stories really so interesting and engaging they're pretty much all good that's something i've you know, I don't remember coming across in a short story collection before, like the lottery. I mean, there's 25 stories, and every one is is great. Everyone can be reread with with pleasure many times. And in fact, I've read these um, three or four times, I guess. Um, you know, and coming back was always really pleasurable. In fact, I had an audiobook this time, which was really really nice. I've never gone through this with an audiobook before, and this time I was able to get a hold of one. And yeah, it's just that just uh, yeah, these are really, really great stories, and they're a lot more fun with this this particular audiobook production. You have a woman writer and a male writer, and depending on the point of view of the main characters, uh, one or the other is used. Um, but yeah, I, if you haven't read The Lottery, you really, I have to really, really strongly recommend that you read it. Not just the story of The Lottery, that's that's actually not by far my favorite here. I mean, it's, it's fairly down on the list. It's it's It made her really famous, though, and it's... It's famously disturbed so many readers at the New Yorker, I believe it was, that you know she 
she got all these letters and she would often talk about this when she would do book, you know, book readings and stuff about how the people who read the lottery just were horrified at what she was trying to say there about society. But those people either hadn't read too many of Shirley Jackson's other works or not paid attention because she was doing that all the time. I mean, every one of these stories in some way just talks about the weirdness, the oddity of interpersonal relationships, the, the day-to-day brutality of, of these relationships. And you always feel a little bit uncomfortable. Or her, she's really, really great at, at making you feel the discomfort that her characters are, are feeling. Um, there's a lot to say about these stories, obviously, and they're um, just really, really great. So, yeah, dive in. If you haven't read The Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson, please, please do. Um, so, yeah, I'm so, so, start jumping into this. I'm going to look at the first half today. The, is it, it's, it's in four parts, and each part has six or seven stories. And then I think one has seven, the other ones all have six. Um, I, I tried really hard to think if there was common themes, and, and sometimes you seem to have that, like section two mostly deals with children and adults, but then there's children and adult interactions in, in other stories too. So, um, you know, maybe there's there's like chapters almost in this, but, you know, I don't think you have to overthink it. Just um, they're, they're, they're really wonderful stories. Um, now, most of these have been published before by Shirley Jackson. I think eight or nine or so were published just for the lottery, and this was the first time they were published. And I'll go through that as I approach the stories about where they were first first published. Um, they're not in any, like I was, I was suggesting, they're not in any particular order that I can tell. They're not chronological in the order she published them. I mean, she put them together in this order for a reason, though. And, and I, I tried to think about that and couldn't quite figure it out. But if anyone knows that about, about this particular work, let me know. Um, so the subtitle of this collection is The Adventures of James Harris. Now, James Harris is a character of sorts who floats through the novel, but he's not really, a, a, you know, there are people named Jim Har- James Harris that you talk to and, and meet. There's others that are kind of there as ghosts almost, or figments of characters' imagination, or memories, or background characters. It's not, it's not meant to be the same person, but this, this archetype kind of floats through. And James Harris, this comes from The Demon Lover. So one of the stories here is actually called The Demon Lover. I'll talk about that pretty shortly. It's the second story in the collection. And that actually, Demon Lover is the name of an old English folk song. And in the United States, it was called The House Carpenter. And there's a wonderful, I think it's Clarence Ashley's recording of it that was in the American Anthology of Folk Music Collection that came out in the 50s. So you can listen to that um, version. That's like an American version of it. There was a traditional English story. I think it was in a book, a collection of child children's odes. Um, that that and it's actually cite quoted yeah, at length. The whole poem's quoted at the end. Yeah, it's child ballad number two hundred forty-three in this English collection of child ballads. Um, the, essentially, the story of a demon lover is this woman had this affair with essentially with Jane Harris, who's essentially the devil. Um, but it ends and she goes and starts a family with this house carpenter and they have a kid together. But then this James Harris comes back from the sea. He's like a ship captain or something. He comes back and takes her away and she leaves her family. And not long after going to sea, they die. In the song I'm most familiar with, the American version of the song, I think the ship just sinks. But in the story included here, it's more clear that this is the devil. Kind of reveals himself to the devil before destroying the ship and killing her, so she gets punished for her, her, her sin of, of adultery, I guess. 
Um, so that, this character of Jim Harris floats throughout the story. I'm not sure I'll get every reference to it, to him, but, um, you know, they're pretty much there. And again, I don't know if we need to make too much of it. It's just something that's floating through. It's like a ghost that floats throughout there. Now, there's another kind of um, bracketing device that Shirley Jackson uses here, and that is this old witch hunting book called the Sadducema Triumphatus. And this is one of many uh, witch hunting guides that were published in the early modern period during the period of the great witch hunts. And this becomes the epigraph to each of the four sections of the, of the short story collection. So before every six or seven stories, there's a little segment of it. And this, you know, is where you'd want to really dig into if you wanted to find like a thematic tie to it, right? But, um, you know, this kind of, but you, you know, the idea of witches is very strong in this book. I wouldn't say these stories are necessarily supernatural, although they're odd. There, there are maybe some supernatural elements in some of them, but mostly, by far, it's the, the horror of it comes out of just the weirdness of different people. They're relishing in violence, they're relishing in brutality. They're, they're just overall cruelty is what makes these stories fairly horrifying to, to readers. Um, the lottery is, is, I think, the only one set kind of in a, some kind of other world, right? It's like a village. You probably read the lottery. You know, that, that's not even really science fiction. I mean, there could be a village like that somewhere, but it, it could be kind of a it's kind of a dystopian sort of tale. But the rest are really grounded in our reality. It's just the characters are, are weird. Um, now, is this Gothic? Well, you know, of course, Gothic literature is known for the focus on like the old house. Um, and you have that. You have that, of course, Haunting of Hill House. That's her at her greatest doing this gothic thing, but houses run throughout this, these stories in most of them, I would say, like the importance of the house. In fact, especially the first part, houses are very, very key to these characters' experience. Either they're in a house and they're not comfortable there, or they're in a house and it's really key to who they are and their identity, and then it somehow gets disrupted or displaced in some way. Uh, the intimacy of homes here is really, really powerful, really, really easy to see. Um, and, the, and then we got kind of this Shirley Jackson heroine, which, of course, we have Eleanor in Haunting of Hill House has this. Many of the women here do, too. And these are like aging women, maybe in their 30s, maybe a little bit older, who, you know, are looking for a husband or aren't married or kind of lonely, have there's something missing in their life. And these women might be of different classes that are all, all the same class. But you rarely see like a married couple in these stories. It's almost always a a single woman searching for something in her life. And so that's kind of another motif along with James Harris that runs throughout these stories. So these are fairly well connected, even though she wrote them without, and most of these stories she didn't write with the idea of putting them together in a book. But these same concerns are in her mind throughout it and it, it runs throughout the whole, whole collection. So anyways, yeah, um, really wonderful. But let me, let's look at this first uh, epigraph for part one. Um, this is again, it's called the Sadduceus Triumphatus. It's Latin, who knows how it's really pronounced. I'm sure someone knows. Um, but this actually talks about, um, like it's a witness's account of a meeting with the devil. Quote, she saith that after their meetings, they all make very low obediences to the devil who appears in black clothes and a little band. He bids them welcome at their coming and brings wine or beer, cakes, meat, 
or the like. He sits at the higher end. They eat, drink, dance, and have, a, have music. At their party, they used to say, Mary meet, Mary part. Uh, and this is a suggestion of kind of what the witch's Sabbath involves, right? And of course, witches were believed to, to in some cases, literally have sex with the devil. And that's where they get their powers from. And that's why they're totally base and, you know, need to be burned at the stake or whatever. And now, if you don't know the story of the witch trials, it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately because I think about Lovecraft a lot these days. But in Lovecraft, you Lovecraft seemed to really believe that witches were a real thing right? in Europe. He was really keen on one particular book that talked about the witch cults of Europe, which argues essentially that witches were real subcultures in, in Europe. And most historians now tend to focus more on feminism or the Reformation or things like that when, when trying to look at the witch trials and the witch craze, which may have killed up to a million women over the course of a century or two. Um, I don't know if it was that high, but estimates, you know, or at least in the hundreds of thousands of women killed across Europe, mostly in Germany. Um, but Lovecraft thought these were like a real thing. And almost, I would say in Lovecraft's mind, needed to be repressed in a way. And that's something I can get at if I ever talk about Lovecraft in some more um, detail in the future. I know some people want me to dig into Lovecraft the way I did Philip Dick. We'll see. Uh, I hope to do that someday. I'm still trying to struggle to kind of put together a monograph, though, on Lovecraft. Still bogged down in the letters, unfortunately. Um, but, of course, most people don't look at it that way. Most people look at the witches from a more feminist or perspective or from the perspective of an obsession about religious purity in the Reformation era or things like that. And I don't know where Shirley Jackson really fits on that, but a lot of her characters are sort of witch-like um, in their, their kind of... They're just overall uh, kind of evilness. I mean, people come off of evil. It's not that they necessarily do anything particularly evil or horrible, as some characters here do. It's just more in your day-to-day -day interactions, how you are indifferent to other people, or you kind of relish in the suffering of others, or you, you play around with people in ways that, without really considering the consequences of what you're doing. And it kind of makes everyone in these stories potentially villainous and, and creepy. Uh, there's a great story uh, I think it might be the last one in this first half that we'll look at where you got like two grandparents t taking these two, this grandmother taking these two girls, it's sort of like her granddaughter and her friend, out on a day, out on a, a day in town and they go to visit a battleship and go shopping or the movies and things like that. But by the end of the novel, like the Marines who are also there because the battleship is in ports, so sailors and, and Marines, they, they come off as, as, as a threat to these kids and they're like scared of them by the end. Partially that's because of what her grandmother said, but, uh, and kind of warned them about, but everything is, every, everything is uplifted to this villainous level. And the, the way characters are described here and the way these settings are described are so wonderfully spooky. Uh, yeah, I just, I, um, really, really great. A really wonderful experience to read the lottery, it seems to me. So, um, so that's why I think witchcraft is important here because the witches are, are like these other people, right? And like anyone could be a witch, I suppose, in her mind. So anyways, uh, the first story is called The Intoxicated and we jump right in with, with the creepiness only almost from page one. It's a, it's a fairly short story. Now this one was published in 1949 and was published for the lottery. So it's one of 
a little bit less than half of these stories that was specifically published for for this collection. So if if it has a you know those are stories that that maybe were added really and she had certain themes on her mind when she wrote them. Now we have a narrator who's visiting this other house with visiting this woman at, at her house and there's a daughter there named Eileen who's like a teenager, 16 or something. And the man's already drunk, so the title, The Intoxicated, is referring to him. So he's sort of the, the protagonist at this party. Um, but it's just, an, it's just adults having a party, right? And there's this kid hanging around. You've maybe had an experience like this. And he's, he's a little drunk, and he encounters her and begins to talk to her, small talk with her. But then she gets very serious very quickly, and she starts basically saying there's not going to be a future for us. The apocalypse is coming. The end of the world is coming. And... and she, yeah, she gives her whole theory about why the end of the world is imminent. And part of the weirdness here is that she seems to relish this vision of hers of the end of the world. She, um, I keep, I'm just quoting this little girl, Eileen. Well, she's a young woman, really. I, know. Um, I keep figuring how it will be. Somehow I think that the churches are going to be first, even before the Empire State Building. And then all the big apartments, houses by the rivers, slipping down, slowly into the water with the people inside, and the schools in the middle, well, Latin class maybe, while we're reading Caesar. Each time we begin a chapter in Caesar, I wonder if this won't be the one we never finish. Maybe we in our Latin class will be the last people who ever read Caesar. I'll be able to get all the movie magazines I want. The subways will crash through you now, and little magazine stands will be squandered. You'll all be able to pick up all the candy bars you want and magazines and lipsticks and artificial flowers from the five and ten and dresses lying on the street from all the big stores and fur coats. Things will be different afterwards. Everything will be will that makes the world like it is now will be gone. We'll have new rules and a new way of living. Maybe there'll be a law not to live in houses so that no one can hide from anyone else. You'll see. So uh, certainly in, in 49, there's people fearing the end of the world, right? Fearing World War III, fearing a nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union or the outbreak of war. It's the beginning of the Cold War, right? And I, I you know, that's maybe part of this. Also part of it is this disconnect between the goals and dreams of older people and younger people and, and how they, from one point of view, the point of view of the older people, what the young people, how they see the world and what they envision for the future is rather bizarre. The fact that she seems to relish this possible end of the world is disconcerting to, to readers. So she's, she's obviously rebelling against something. She's rebelling against, uh, against kind of bourgeois middle-class life. And that's a common theme in 1950s writings, right? The, the counterculture movement, this idea that there's something disgusting about, about the squares, about mainstream life, right? And that, of course, reaches, reaches full for flourishing in the, in the 30s. So it's a very, very short story. And it just ends with the adult kind of disregarding what this young woman says, saying kids nowadays, you know, it's like, oh, you, you kids, you don't really know. You, you, know, you just have weird thoughts, even though she is fairly old. I mean, she's almost an adult herself. Um, but uh, really great introduction, just this, this difficulty of people from different generations of communicating. And on top of that, you know, he's drunk. So that gives an extra level of weirdness to it. If, if you've ever been drunk, and had talks that got a little bit bizarre. People started, their personality changed because they had too many beers. And, you know, it makes things uncomfortable and a bit weird that way too. So I think there's a lot going on in this little story. I really loved it. I, I, I won't say that too much. I mean, I'll, I'll be repeating myself. Every one of these stories is, is really great. Um, 
All right, um, next. Uh, the next story is The Demon Lover. The Demon Lover was first published in 1949, the same year as The Lottery, but it wasn't published in The Lottery. It was published in The Woman's Home Companion. Um, now, as for these stories, I do believe she edited them a little bit for inclusion in The Lottery, so I don't know if like the name Jim Harris was added to the later story. I should, you know, I should have done my due diligence and looked up the original story, but um, you know, who, who cares? But, you know, maybe these were, I do think they were a little bit for continuity and for themes to, to tie the story collection more together. Um, but yeah, Demon Lover. Um, Demon Lover, I think it's a fairly famous one too by her. I know the Library of America anthologized the Demon Lover in their collection of, of, of kind of supernatural fiction, right? Now, I wouldn't say this is a supernatural story precisely. There seems to be a ghost. I mean, you could interpret this as mental illness or delusions or just a, a scorned woman. You know, there could be a supernatural element to it. The ending seems to apply that that could, that could be possible, but it's more about the, you know, placing the, it's more about this, this, the whole story is about this woman desperately searching for this man she plans to marry today. And his name is Jim Harris. He is our first, I think, reference to Jim Harris in this entire book outside of the title. Um, so she, she gets up, um, not able to sleep because she's going to get married and she's anxious about that, but she gets up, goes through her daily routine, but you know, she knows she's going to get married. She's getting ready for that too. Now she calls him Jamie and later on she gives his name more formally as James Harris, I, I believe. But I think she, she, she hears him early on in this, the story, but we never actually see him. All we, we get a description of him from her, that he wears a blue suit. Um, but anyways, uh, she, he never comes back, and she gets worried about him coming back, so she starts to search for him around town. And she has various conversations with people, and I think that's really what makes this story so powerful, is these various conversations she has with people asking desperately about where this guy is. And, you know, she asks someone, like, who's selling news, at the newsstand? Like, have you seen this guy? And he's like, I've seen a lot of people. And then almost when the, this person, this guy selling newspapers, finds out that she's distraught and a bit off and a bit weird, he starts to play with her saying, oh, yeah, I saw someone like that. You know, she later on, she goes to a flower shop and the same thing happens. And the guy's like, yeah, I saw a guy here buying flowers. And I think he buys chrysanthemums. And she's like, well, that wouldn't be right for a wedding. He's like, well, lady, you know, I, that's who bought it. And yeah, he's wearing a blue suit. Something and then he went off that way. And later on, he talks to a kid, and you get the sense that these people are kind of leading her on or playing around with her in very vindictive and rather vicious ways because she is coming off as a very, very desperate, paranoid, horrified woman, uh, desperately searching for this this man that she's she's going to marry. Um, now, just to say the obvious, this is another kind of this is a really good example of this Shirley Jackson heroine, this older woman who hasn't married, but that's an obsessive part of her mind and her consciousness is her, her inability to have gotten married. And that becomes an obsession for her. And maybe if you want to read this as a case of, of sort of mental illness, um, just someone who has kind of lost it because she's so out of place in the world and she hasn't achieved any of her dreams. And so she just kind of loses it and, and imagines this person. And maybe the people in the town down to know she's a nutty person. And that's why they sort of play around with her. But no one really wants to help her very much. They just sort of tease her. That's, um, you know, if you're reading this from beginning to end, this, this is really a sign that we're in a world in which people are essentially evil to one another. And 
lacking empathy, lacking remorse, and, and using other people as, as playthings. So the, the climax of the story comes when this 12-year-old boy says, yeah, I saw this guy, he gave me a dollar or something. And, and she, he points to this house. And she goes to the house and hears voices inside the house. So she thinks it's occupied. She knocks on the door and the people stop talking. And at one point she sees a rat. Or no, after that she knocks again and there's no sound. So she finally opens the door and all she sees in, this, in the house is a rat. Um, but she leaves, and but she still thinks that maybe this house has some significance or maybe that James Jamie's there. So she comes back repeatedly. And that's the last lines of the story tell us that she comes back repeatedly to visit this house and to to check on it but and she thinks she hears voices in there so she keeps on this delusion that's inhabited although it seems not to be um, but uh, yeah that's that's the story so it, you know how do, what do you make of it? it it seems to be a woman who's lost her her grounding it could be kind of a supernatural it could be like the demon i mean the story is called the demon lover so if you want to say that this is the devil has seduced this woman and is, is abandoning her you know, that's not that hard to buy because that is the plot of the song that this story is named after. But I think a more traditional materialistic reading is this is just a woman who's who's lost her mind and the people in the neighborhood don't know how to deal with her. The only There's only two characters who actually say, yeah, I saw that guy, I know exactly where he went. One's like a drunk old guy and the other is this kid who seems to just want money from her. So neither of them are the most honest, honest narrators. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really fun story. Like, you get the bizarre neighbors, you get the the crazy woman, you have the like, the insidious evil nature of others. Just this, no one here is sympathetic to this woman who's like, dressed up for a wedding, desperately seeking her fiance. No one really wants to help her in any serious way. And it is very off-putting. Uh, to, to read, but it, it just sucks you in. This is a really, really wonderful story. The Demon Lover. Um, yeah, I think that might be the first Shirley Jackson story I actually ever read years and years ago. So next, uh, oh, by the way, just to, thematically another tie into that story is the house, the, the house that she ends up with. Now, she associates this house with Jamie Harris. She associates this house with her in a way. That's why she keeps coming back to it. We also get a very good description of her house at the beginning. So there's kind of two houses that are paralleling, um, parallelly used in this, this story. Um, anyways, next story, the third one, Like Mother Used to Make. So Like Mother Used to Make, uh, actually I had forgotten the story until I got to the climax, and then I remembered it. It was uh, the, the punchline of sorts of the story I, I remembered. Then I, then I remembered reading this. Um, I didn't remember so much about the first two-thirds of the story, which is about mostly this guy, his name's David Turner, who's obsessed with his house. And so we, again, we got the theme of the house. Uh, really, really strong in this story, actually. The, one's identity tied to one's house and to, the, and to what one's created in one's house, whether it's the furniture or, in his case, silverware collection that he that he has. So anyway, it's like Mother Used to Make, first published in 1949, also for the lottery. This story also has a Jim Harris, who we actually see. He actually shows up. Um, there's no reason to think it's the same Jim Harris that our, 
protagonist in the demon lover was looking for. It's just the name that keeps reappearing in creepy ways. Um, we have two char three characters, essentially. We've got David Turner. He's the first one we meet. Uh, and he owns this, he's, he lives in this house, and he's out buying supplies for this dinner he's going to have with the neighbor, Marsha, uh, who lives right across from him in the apartment building. And, you know, he's really, really obsessed with his silverware and his house and getting everything right. He's a, he's a very working class guy, though. He doesn't have a lot of money to spend on it, so he kind of slowly builds up his environment. This is, you know, I've moved a lot, so I've never had this attachment to a place quite so much, but... You know, even if you just live in a place for a year or two, you know, things are in the right place. Things do have a kind of significance and houses do connect to you in very um, concrete ways, even if even if you do move around a lot. But if you live in a place for a long time, I'm sure that's a much stronger connection between who you are and your house. That's why you never quite feel at home in other people's houses. That's why when people come to your house, they can be disruptive to your, your security. Um, so basically, this guy, he has this date with his neighbor, Marsha, and he makes for her a, a decent dinner. He makes for her a, a cherry pie, and they chit-chat and talk about things. And then she gets a knock on her door. When she Remember, she's just across the hall. And she gets a knock on the door, and she goes there, and she thinks it's like the landlord coming for her rent because she hasn't paid her rent. And instead, it's this man, Jim Harris, who's like a friend or acquaintance of hers. And she invites him in, and of course David has to sort of accept it, but Marsha immediately starts acting like this is her house and this is her dinner. She, it's kind of, I don't know if it's like originally a bit of a game, but it becomes more and more creepy and serious as the story goes on. So this Jim Harris starts, like, I think the first time we really hear clearly that she's kind of claiming for herself what David has done was when he offers her him the pie and says this pie was baked by me and obviously we just learned in previous pages that it was clearly baked by david um, and then they start he starts smoking cigars in this on his couch and this makes david really really uncomfortable and finally marcia kind of hints like don't you want to go now you know kind of like he's almost like being cuckolded here and i don't know if their relationship had a sexual future or not but you really get the sense he's sort of she's being cuckled right in front of him by Marsha. And she she basically hints, isn't it? You know, don't you have to get up early tomorrow or something? And and he leaves and she gives him the or he has somehow he, he I think she gave him the key to his to her apartment. And he's like, okay, I'll go back to my apartment. And he goes over to Marsha's house and just waits there while, you know, and he hears noises from his apartment. And this apart weird apartment swap takes place very, very suddenly, pretty much with the arrival of this disruptive force, Jim Harris. And it totally disrupts his world, and literally. And by disrupting it, his disruptive world literally means he loses his home, at least short term. But it's, you know, who knows? Like, maybe he has to sleep at Marsha's house. The way things are going with Jim Harris and Marsha, I don't know. Maybe he's going to have to sleep and in Marsha's apartment that night. Who knows how long that will go on. Now in a different story, this would be like a sitcom kind of thing, right? This would be something in a comedy. But here, it, again, it comes off really, really creepy and it's a lot of fun. And what's so um, weird for David at the end is he's not in his house. That's ultimately what's so bizarre for him. Um, but so many interesting things here, like how these visitors can disrupt your 
comfort of your of your home, of your well-managed home. This is a theme, by the way, that she picks up immediately in the very, very next story, Trial by Combat. So let's just let's just jump over to that story. Um, Trial by Combat was published a lot earlier in 1944 in the New Yorker. Actually, she published in a lot of kind of big name journals, the Woman's Home Companion, New Yorker, um, the American Mercury. She, Mademoiselle, good publications. I mean, pop, more popular magazines, certainly. So she was, would have been known to popular audiences, unlike some of the authors we looked at this in the series who were maybe more known by academic audiences or had a harder time breaking free of, of kind of high literature. Now, she published in more popular journals, but then not the pulps, right? She wasn't publishing like pulp journals so much. She was publishing in mainstream, you know, magazines. So... I don't know, I have to look at her biography and to see how she she got into that, that gig, because I assume they paid a lot better than the pulps, but I'm not sure. So Trial Guy Combat, um, very again, about how people coming into your house can be a disruptive thing. Um, the whole story involves a woman who is going to her, goes to her neighbor's house on a friendly visit, but she's really got an agenda. Her, her neighbor's like an old woman, like she's like, She's like the witch. She is the kind of a witch figure. You want a witch? This this woman is. Um, so she's presented as that way. She's she's old. She's kind of not very mobile. She's a bit weird. She speaks a little bit oddly. She's, um, but anyways, this younger woman, had, you know, does small talk with her and then brings up the issue of you know, I don't want to tell my landlord this, but I've been really having this problem that things have been disappearing from my house and it seems someone's coming in and taking my stuff and I can't have it, but I don't want to have to go to the landlord. What do you suggest? That kind of thing. And obviously she's accusing this old woman of stealing things from her house. And she's not stealing big things. She's stealing like cigarettes and napkins and like little silverware things, like little nonsense. But as we learned from the previous story, like mother used to make, those little things can be really, really key to how one sees oneself within one's own space. And her life obviously has been disrupted in a significant way by this woman. Um, now, there's one other thing that's kind of revealed when she goes to this neighbor's house is that her house is like parallel. They're very different because they've been personalized, but it's essentially the same structure and it's just a different floor. Um, so anyways, she confronts this old woman and she never, the woman doesn't acknowledge doing it. She just says, yeah, we got to do something about this. You can't have someone breaking into your house and stealing stuff. Anyway, she leaves basically failing in her quest, but she decides to call him, call him sick the next day and she just waits there. So she listens very carefully and when this old woman leaves her house, she goes down the steps, goes into the house, goes into her house. It's like an old skeleton key. That's how why the old woman can break in because it's like old-fashioned skeleton keys. It's not individualized locks. She's able to, you know, open the door, get in, and she finds her stuff. She, she finds all her stuff, but she kind of turns around and there's the old woman had come back and the young woman, the younger woman has to say, oh, I don't know why I'm here. Like I got on the wrong floor. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be here. She doesn't really, she loses. She doesn't, she's not able to confront this old woman, uh, even though she has to prove that her stuff has been stolen by her. There's so much good stuff going on in this story. Uh, on the one hand, you have the just the difficulty of confronting someone if you've you know 
even if you're in a position of power over them or you're older or younger, whatever it is, you know, for whatever reason, it's really hard to confront people about these things. And, you know, in, you know, if you ever had to do it, if you ever had to have a hard talk with someone, it, it is really, really hard. And you understand why this woman is not able to kind of fall through on it. Because she even acknowledges this is a little stuff. It's just really creepy. Um, another interesting thing is how, even though you have a very different age, you know, you kind of see kind of a mirror image here. The, ho the houses, the apartments are literally mirror images of one another. And, you know, if your identity is your stuff, when she moves, the old woman takes her stuff and moves it to her own house, she's in a sense stealing her identity and her, her place in, in this world in a way. So there, there's kind of a parallelism to it. It's, um, you know, it almost could be like a science fiction time travel story, right? Where an older version of yourself is stealing stuff from yourself for some reason. I don't, you know, it, but no, she doesn't do it that way. She just puts us up as a straightforward story of the conflict between these two, um, these two women. Um, a lot of fun. Um, nice one. Trial by Combat, that one's called. Next, we have uh, The Villager. The Villager published it, was published in 1944 in American Mercury. All right, The Villager. Uh, so The Villager is a refer reference to the, the newspaper that this main character, Miss Clarence, is, is reading. And she's a dancer, and she's a, a spinster. So she's another aging spinster. Um, and she, she just gets, she just reads in the newspaper that this woman is, is selling her furniture. It's like an estate sale. And so she goes there, she goes there and there's no one there. There's just a note on the door that says, come on in, you know, you can look at the furniture. So she does that. And it, it's Miss Roberts. That's the, the, the house they're in. She goes in and looks around and, you know, it doesn't really fit her apartment. So the, the implication here again is that what we put into our place that we live is really important to who we are and to our, to our identity. And she doesn't really grok that any of this stuff is going to work for her. Um, but she does find books and the books are of, of dance and this, you know, so we get kind of a parallelism of the persons and, you know, that maybe this, Roberts is like a, an older version of her, also maybe a dancer. Um, now the phone rings and she picks it up and this is really another kind of weird circumstance. Now obviously there's a note on the door, people were allowed to come in, but when you call someone and it's not who you expect, you know, was this the wrong number or, or whatever, but it's, it's, the wife, it's the husband of this woman who's selling the stuff, uh, this guy, Mr. Roberts. And she says, oh, I'm just here looking for furniture. And he says, well, tell her to call me back or something. And he also explains that, that they're leaving to go to Paris, right? So again, if we want to think about Clarence and Roberts as parallel figures, Clarence is more of a failure than Roberts is going somewhere in her, in her life, perhaps. Um, so she keeps looking around. She looks through the books and she kind of dances a little bit, performing the dances that she sees on the book. And then Harris comes in, James Harris. I don't, again, I don't, there's no reason to think it's the same James, Jim Harris, but another Jim Harris comes in to the story. And he also is looking for furniture. Um, but he thinks, of course, that Clarence is the, the owner of the, the, the furniture. She sort of takes on this woman's identity. Um, so 
you know, we've seen several stories all in a row about people in someone else's space taking their identity in a way, right? So we have Marsha taking over David's identity in his house. We have we have the old the old woman taking this younger woman's identity in trial by combat, and now we have it again, although it's just kind of a, a bit of a, a mistaken identity that did it, but did it. But the end result is, yeah, this she's essentially taken over Mrs. Roberts' identity. Now, Mr. Harris eventually, after she, she actually steals the whole story, even about going to Paris and everything. Um, but then Mr. Harris, James Harris, doesn't really want any of the stuff, and Clarence doesn't either, so he leaves, and then, and then Clarence leaves, leaving a note saying, like, your husband called. But I don't want any of the furniture. Um, and that's the story. But what's really key here is her dissatisfaction with her life, leading her to live vicariously, even if just a moment, the life of someone who is more successful than her, and going somewhere with the, maybe the same career. Um, yeah, a really, really nice little story. I enjoyed that one quite a lot. Then we have a little story. This is the sixth one. Uh, My Life with R.H. Macy, 1941, published in the New Republic. As far as I know, this is the first earliest published story in this collection. Um, I'm not sure if some of the uncollected stuff were published earlier, but it's pretty early in her writing career. And this seems to be drawn from life. This is like a comedy sketch. It doesn't fit as clearly with the others. I just It's just a fun little story. It's only three pages long or so. And it's just about the oddities of the department store. And essentially, we're in a bit of a bureaucratic hell here. And Shirley Jackson is having fun with the, the hell that is created by the bureaucracy of working in a big corporation like, like Macy's. Um, quote, they gave us each a big book with R.H. Macy written on it. And inside this book were little pads of, were pads of little sheets saying from left to right, cop, kept for ref, cust, D.A. number, or CT, no sale book, no sales check, no clerk, no department, date, M. After M, there's a long line for Mr. and Mrs. and the name. And then it began with no item, class, at, price, total. And down at the bottom was written original. And then again, comp, kept for reference. And paste yellow gift stamp here. I read this all very carefully. Now, there's not much story here. It's just her, you know, working there. And at the end, she realizes that she's one of, something like 12,000 workers at Macy's across the country. And she just then decides to resign. The last line is, I wrote Macy a long letter and signed it with all my numbers added together and divided by 11,700, which is the number of employees at Macy's. I wonder if they miss me, end quote. And obviously they don't, but this is just a fun little story, again, about kind of the oddities of modern living. We have a character who's like other Shirley Jackson heroines, the unmarried aging woman. Um, but um, written at a much earlier time, and, and maybe it seems the most out of place out of this first group of stories. Um, so um, that's the first part of the lottery. But that's only 50 pages into the book, um, unfortunately. So there's so much to talk about with, with Shirley Jackson. It's so wonderful. This, these are really, really, really fun. Um, now, part two begins, like part one, with an epigraph. And this one's also from the Sadducemus Triumphatus. And again, I'll just read it because um, maybe it will connect us to what the themes is. I, I think the theme in the first part, there's a lot of stories about place, about swapping identities, about, um, I mean, there's some things there about kind of the nastiness of other people. 
but really a lot of the stories have to do with, with place and identity and how kind of our identities are tied to that and how if we lose that, we lose a bit of who we are or how we can take over other people's identities just by taking over their space or um, whatever, like in um, The Villager. Okay, part two, the epigraph goes like this. The ignorant looker-on can't imagine what the limner means by those seemingly rude lines and scrawls which he intends for the rudiments of a picture and the fragment of mathematical operations are nonsense and dashes on adventure or to one uninstructed in mechanics. We are in the dark to one another's purposes and intentments and there are a thousand intrigues in our little matters which will not presently confess their design even to assiduous inquisitors. So here, this is obviously something Shirley Jackson is trying to get at, is how people are just un, not, are, are beyond our comprehension. We really can't understand them. And that's why they feel odd to us, or these encounters are weird or uncomfortable for us. There's just this lack of, of, of knowledge, there's like this veil between people that make all encounters potentially really bizarre. And I think one thing that comes out through a lot of these stories is the interactions between adults and children. So I think part of it is children can't understand adults and adults can understand children. Well, actually, I see these are going to be kind of long episodes. So I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to come back uh, maybe tomorrow and finish this up. So I'll see you then. Okay, and I am back um, to finish the second half of this episode looking at part two of of the lottery. Um, so the first story in part two of the lottery and other stories by Shirley Jackson is called The Witch. Um, now this, of course, the title directly connects to a lot of the themes Shirley Jackson is playing with, whether it's aging women or kind of odd behavior or the inability to interact with, with people and the, the figure of the witch or the devil. Now, I think James Harris is kind of always a dynamic demonic figure when he shows up bad things tend to happen to our our characters so the witch um this one actually has a man called uh i think this guy's name is exactly uh james harris i think he gives his name yeah um but basically the whole story is set in a train coach and there's a, a woman with her two kids a son who's like five or something and a, and a baby sister so you know the baby sister doesn't matter that much except in the way that this young man interacts with another man on the coach an old man who again has a blue suit just like um we've seen you know back in the demon lover there was a man with a blue suit that was who the woman was thought was her fiance um, and they just chit chat and it starts out as a nice conversation but then the conversation gets really really bizarre by by the end and they start talking about witches and he claims essentially to have that his sister was a witch and that he killed her i mean the, the what he says is a kind of like actually horrifying especially if you imagine him saying this to a four-year-old now the four-year-old's response to this guy confessing that he killed his sister is first curiosity and, and kind of humor at it he thinks it's kind of a funny thing but as he dwells more on what he actually said it becomes that much more horrifying Oh, no, he doesn't say she's a witch. He asks, is what your sister a witch? Because he's kind of joking that his little baby sister's a witch. And he says, maybe. And he asks, like, what did you do with her? And he says, I bought her a rocking horse and a doll and a million lollipops. And then I took her and put my hands around her neck and I pinched her and I pinched her until she was dead. And then I took and, then I took and I cut off her head and I took her head. Did you cut it all into pieces? The little boy asked breathlessly. I cut off her nose and her hands and her feet and her hair and her nose, the man said. And I hit her with a stick and I killed her. 
At this point, the mother intervenes, you know, kind of horrified that this weird man is saying this to his son, and and then then the the mother just kind of deals with the aftermath of this, trying to explain to this young boy, you know, this was just a weird man. The young boy though thinks that maybe that guy was a witch. Um, really, really creepy little tale. Again, it's only like four pages. Yeah, I think it's only four pages, but it's one of the creepiest in the in the anthology. Um, just this kind of weird interaction with people, right? And I think there's a common theme throughout the whole part two, and that is children versus adults, and how parent like adults can't understand children, children can't really understand adults, and they talk differently. And um, you know, this conversation is sort of given through this young kid's head, so it's not maybe fully objective. You know, there's a lot of unreliable narrators throughout the lottery and other stories. But yeah, that's all I can say about this one. It's it's really interesting and a lot of fun, and you should you should read this one even if you don't read some of the others. All right, the next story is called the Renegade. This is another story I really really like that really hints at the the strangeness of 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 people's behavior and the kind of the underlying violence in people. Um, the story is about a basically it's a, a woman, Mrs. Walpole, with her family moved to the countryside. So she's kind of in this, she's from the city to the countryside. That's actually another theme in the lottery is people moving from the countryside to the city or city to countryside or people in the city kind of not really making sense of where they're at. Um, so anyway, she's just having a nice day and then she gets a call from the neighbors and the neighbors say like, your dog's been eat, killing our chickens and we can't have that. And the implication obviously of these other people on the phone is that the only solution is to kill the dog. And that's how people in the countryside deal with a chicken eating dog chicken killing dog it doesn't eat them because they said there's really no material loss because we just eat the chickens after they're killed but we can't have the dog running around killing our chickens and mrs walpole who loves this this dog doesn't quite know what to do about this event and she thinks maybe i can chain the dog or or, or heal the dog or get it to stop killing chickens and so she ends up asking different people it kind of parallels away i think demon lover how you know, in Demon Lover, you have the woman asking different people, and their response is always really bizarre or vindictive or they're just vicious. Uh, the same thing is kind of here, but here, what people really want to see is like all these people want to see this dog killed or something horrible happening to the dog. Like, one of the options someone gives is like the really way to cure a dog of killing chickens is to is to put it next to a chicken that's a, just laid some, you know, just is giving birth to some chicks. Then it'll like violently poke out the eye of the dog. It'll defend the, 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 the eggs or the chicks. Uh, another guy says like, you, what you got to do is take a chicken and tie it around his neck, tight so he can't get rid of it. And eventually it'll stink and rot and get gross and he can't get rid of it. And eventually the dog will learn to hate chickens and never want to touch another chicken. Uh, and there's these other kind of home remedy, but that's a really gross story, like a gross suggestion because she asks like, how long does it have to stay on? And he says, well, till it falls off. So until it's like it's totally rotten, you know, which would be horrifying for the dog. It's really cruel, right? But these people really seem to get off on how cruel these solutions are. And they're really excited. They either want to see this dog killed or whatever. There's like a really nasty underbelly to everyone in this story. <clears throat> now, of course, everyone's thinking of a solution to this. And at the end of the story, the children, Walpole's children, even come up with a solution. And that solution is a collar with like the the spikes in it, the inward looking spikes. Uh, I think they do that to train dogs sometimes, but they imagine that those spikes, if, if pulled hard enough, will cut off the head of the dog. And of course, that's what 
James Harris said he was going to, he did to his sister, cut off her head um, after squeezing it. That's kind of what they, the implication here is what they did to the dog. Oh, I, I forgot to give you the publication dates for these two stories, by the way. So The Witch was published first in the lottery in 1949. Um, and The Renegade was first published in 1948 in Harper's Magazine. I wonder what the Harper's readers thought. We hear so much about what the readers thought of the lottery, the story of the lottery. I mean, this story is just as creepy and weird and horrific as the lottery. I mean, the lottery is a lot easier to take, I think, than, than some of these other stories. Um, just the piling up of people who want to be cruel to this dog who, yeah, it's killing chickens, but he doesn't seem like a bad dog. But even there's a scene where she looks at the dog and the dog's still got blood on him from killing the chickens. And the dog looks kind of innocent and she's kind of creeped out at this that this innocent looking dog that she loves could be capable of these cruel acts. I think it's a metaphor for a lot of what's going on in, in these stories. Um, really, really nice. But the strange neighbors, I think, really strike me in, in The Renegade. Um, a lot of fun there. A lot of fun if you like that kind of gruesome thought or this, this kind of this, this weirdness. Um, I kind of understand why Stephen King thought so much of, of Shirley Jackson, because Stephen King is fairly good at, um, I mean, his characters tend to be good. I mean, he's, Shirley Jackson seems to be very much a pessimist, and King is an optimist, but King was very, also, is also, still, he's not dead, but he's still, you know, very, very good at these very, very evil, matter-of-fact, you know, people, you know, people who relish in violence and murder and, and things like that. His villains, I think, are always quite excellent that's one of the his strengths i think him and characterization of course um but he's an optimist he, he always had wants the good guys to win in the end and it's his that's kind of where his morality and his feelings take him Shirley jackson's characters always end up pretty miserable um but yeah the renegade uh, a nice story um next we have after you my dear alphonse uh, this was published in 1943 in the new yorker and this is one of a few stories in this part of the story, the other one's called The Flower Garden, that deal with race and deal with race and expectations. Uh, basically, the plot of this story, and again, we have a child-adult interaction that's um, where there's a bit of misunderstanding there. And I think this is a really nice story that to get at this, you know, how we are raised in a racist culture, a racist environment, and we don't always... We, we just take for granted certain racial assumptions about people, but young people may not have those or they're growing up in a time when those values are different or changed or progressed. Now, obviously, in 1943, you still have a pretty racist America um, pretty much all the way through among white America. But young people don't see race. they got to be taught race and it's something that's going to be introduced to them. And that can I'm not sure when that exactly happens. Um, I know on plantations in the Old South, I think it was about five years old when the black children started working. That's when they stopped playing with the white kids on the plantation. I read that in some book at one point. And that's kind of when you started getting the, the segregation of, of the races, as much as was possible on a plantation, obviously. The plantation system was, was quite integrated, in, both in the labor system and in the, you know, everyone's living on the one plantation together. <clears throat> Very different than post-war segregation. But still, there's this kind of separation of the, of the parents and the kids. A little bit. You can also think of the, the use of mammies and um, nurses and, uh, you know, black governesses and things for the little kids, which was also commonly done um, on plantations. Uh, but this whole story is about race and expectations, really. We, so we're introduced to this childhood friendship between 
this uh, the main, the woman's son and this and then there's this little um, this black boy who who was brought over and her assumptions about him are all very very heavily racist like the biggest assumption is that her, her his father must be poor and this young boy is miserable and and impoverished and suffering so much and so she kind of has this liberal kind of guilt in interacting with this black boy so here's a bit of her conversation boyd boyd johnny has some suits that are a little too small for him and a winter coat it's not new of course but there's lots of wear in it still and i have a few dresses that your mother or sister could probably use your mother can make them over into lots of things for you all and i'll be very happy to give them to you suppose before i leave i make you a big bundle and then you and johnny can take it over to your mother's right away her voice trailed off as she saw boyd's puzzled expression but i have plenty of clothes thank you he said and i don't think my mother knows how to sew very well in any way i guess we buy about everything we need thank you very much though so th this clear disconnect not only between the, the adult and child uh, of course, her mother, this mother doesn't really understand her son's friendship with this boy. But then there's a racial divide here, too, where she just assumes that a, a young black boy needs charity, which apparently he doesn't. I mean, we actually don't get a big window into, I think, you know, yeah, he's just like a middle class um, uh, kid. Um, but yeah, a nice little story. Very short. Uh, now the title, After You My Dear Old Phones, comes from like a dialogue that the two boys have each other. Kind of they're playing upper class in a way. Uh, and use that, that kind of catchphrase. Um, next we have Charles. Charles was published in 1848 in Mademoiselle of all places. Now I definitely had read this story several times before I even knew who Shirley Jackson was. Or I heard this told. Maybe it was a... Maybe this story's been retold. Um, now, this is, I think, the third time I've gone through these lottery stories. Um, but even when I first read it, I was like, I must have, I came across this story before. Uh, you know, obviously the lottery everyone reads in school at some point. But this one, I, I swear I heard before, but maybe I just heard the motif or the, the, the basic theme. So what happens in Charles is a uh, um, lorry uh, starts kindergarten. He's a young boy. And he, you know, comes back from school each day and tells about school. And he always tells about a boy, Charlie, who's really nasty. Like he swears, he convinces other people in the school to swear, other kids. He's always being punished. He hits people. He hits the teacher at one point. And he loves these stories about Charlie. And it's really kind of humorous to watch these increasingly disturbing stories about Charlie. Now, at one point, Charlie, this Charlie seems to reform a little bit, but he's still evil deep down. Um, and and the parents are like, well, I really want to meet the parents of these Charlie. This he must have a handful. They're really curious about it, and they're getting a lot of pleasure out of out of some Schadenfreude or watching another family have to deal with a really bad kid because their kid, of course, is so good. And now, of course, the punchline of the story is the parent-teacher conference or the PTA meeting or whatever. They meet the teacher and they ask about this Charlie. It's like that Charlie must be a handful, and the teacher says, well, We don't have a Charlie. Uh, and of course, the implication is either this Lori is Charlie's a figment of his imagination, but that doesn't seem to be the case because she does mention that Lori took a while to adjust and he was quite a handful early on. She's a bit vague about it. I mean, she doesn't confirm any of the stories that Lori tells about this Charlie, but you know, it's it's you know it's probably Lori doing these things and he just blames this made-up person Charlie um, now of course the parents n not not knowing they have this vicious boy 
on in their roof scene every day is classic Shirley Jackson. It's just, you know, you know, that's someone you, you should be intimate with. You should know deep down, no better than anyone else is a stranger to you. I mean, really, really a horrifying thing. I mean, the demon lover, the, what the scary thing about the demon lover, you know, beyond the kind of the mental illness that, that, that woman seems to have is that you could at one point, like, be in love with someone, be ready to marry someone, and they could just vanish. I mean, this happens to people, obviously. People get jilted. People flee. Dads go out for cigarettes and never come back. Um, this I don't know if it happens a lot, but anecdotally, you know, it happens. And that realization, we just don't know someone, right? Think of Stephen King again. He wrote this really wonderful story uh, a few years ago called The Good Marriage, I think it's called, um, where a woman realizes her husband is a serial killer, you know, and it's, it horrifies her, right? Now, the woman in that, in that story, The Good Marriage, does the right thing and goes to the cops and all that, but still, it's really creepy watching her kind of find out, like, her husband's supply of, of, of I think it was um, driver's license. Says, so, uh, anyways, I the Charlie's just a great fun story. It's it's hilarious. It it's it's really because you're enjoying like with the parents enjoying hearing about this really nasty kid, and you know only at the end is it revealed that it's probably Lori who is doing the the Charlie's business. Um, now maybe the narrator knows this at some level and doesn't really want to admit it but both her and the husband seem kind of blindsided by it but the husband's a little bit more aloof than than the woman in this particular story the narrator um and given that shirley jackson likes unreliable narrators maybe we can't trust Lori's mother either okay next afternoon in linen this was published in 1943 in the new yorker before it was published in the lottery um afternoon in linen is uh a really nice tale about like two couples that like on a play date and they have these two kids and instead of letting the kids really enjoy each, their time together they're basically brought together so they can show off their two kids talent uh, and so the first attempt to kind of have a competition between the kids is piano playing and um, so our main character here is Harriet Harriet's this young girl um, and so I think it's Mrs. Lennon, and Harriet is the granddaughter of Mrs. Lennon. And then there is their, their, that's the house. And then this Mrs. Catter comes with her son, who's named Howard. And so that basically becomes a competition between the, these two women over how good their kid or granddaughter is. And so they try piano, but Harriet doesn't want to play the piano. And so really feeling kind of with a little egg on her face, feeling one-upped in the piano competition, uh, Mrs. Lennon says, oh, but Harriet writes really, really beautiful poetry, really great poetry. And Harriet's like, no, don't, you know, she's shy and she doesn't want to be on display, rightfully so. I mean, we shouldn't use kids the way some of the adults in these stories use them, especially in this one. Um, but it's not the only time we see something like this in the lottery. Um, you know, basically using kids as a plaything, um, as, a, as a device for their own petty... Um, disagreements or one-up one-upmanship and, and and passive aggressive conflict um, so finally she doesn't listen to Harriet and she pulls out this poem that Harriet wrote and she reads it aloud and it's a really good poem um, but then Harriet confesses to the whole room that she just wrote copied that from a book 
and she was a plagiarist and this you know humiliates her grandmother but in a way she she gets back at at her grandmother for embarrassing her and for not not really respecting her wishes so yeah that's the main story now it seems that she's she actually did write this poem she is a gifted poet but she just wants to embarrass her grandmother there's another interesting level to it is that she's she's a liar she's not a plagiarist and she just is using the plagiarism to to kind of expose her mom's her grandma's stupid games and the way she you know because she's playing a game the grandmother's playing a game with her kids using them so yeah I, I, this is always a really pet peeve of mine where people live vicariously through their kids or or, or thrust their dreams on their kids or or use their kids in various ways i mean there's things we do to children that it would never do i mean a common one is this like you know touching them you know even when they're uncomfortable like you couldn't do that to an adult but we we do it to kids all the time i mean i'm not talking about molest molestation or anything like that i'm just talking about hugging them when they obviously don't want to be hugged or make you know on birthdays making them kind of be on display often they're uncomfortable and don't want to do that um you know chinese parents at least well in taiwan i haven't seen this in china myself but in taiwan i saw it where grandparents and parents will make kids like bow down for red envelopes which is like instead of christmas gifts they get red envelopes which have cash um you know make them bow down and and like do all this filial piety rituals before they get the red envelope and often the red envelope just goes into the college fund anyways it's maybe some for toys they can use but often it goes straight to the college fund and it's all a weird ritual but i don't think the kids get that much out of it i think the kids just do it because you know they're being coerced into it and yeah that's a really really bad thing i think people should not treat kids that way people you know should as much as possible treat kids as as their equals intellectually and and you know there's times we have to protect them of course and and inform them and, and guide them but by and large i think the more autonomy we give kids the better and the more liberty we give to kids the better so anyways i, I like the afternoon and linen even though it's very very subtle the fact that harriet uh probably did write that poem and she was lying about the plagiarism um so next up we have a quite a long tale called the flower garden garden the flower garden was published in 1949 in the lottery and this was the, it was first published in the lottery the flower garden kind of parallels with after you my dear alphonse in that it's about race and expectations um, it's also a little bit about labor and childhood um, so basically we got this little family um, and i'm not going to go through point by point the story because it is rather long and there's a lot of talking and just good old fashioned good old, good old uh shirley jackson stuff like aging women uh you know these kind of the house the descriptions of the house and the house environment the importance of it to people's identity all that is crammed into this nice little story here though you have a flower garden added to it literally a, a flower garden um and so anyways there's this neighborhood kid named the neighborhood family the joneses and they're they're black well the father's black the kids are mulattoes and the mother fled the mother was a white woman who fled at some point and there's a lot of gossip surrounding that family so a lot of the creepiness in this story is just how much this family is talked about in this community it seems they're one of the few black families in the neighborhood and then just like in after you my dear old phones the the white middle class older woman her attitude towards that is one of charity and and, and kind of aid now jones the jones's kid the father 
their father is a uh, like a handyman around town, right? So basically, they talk to this Jones kid the, um, and ask him, like, why don't you come and help me at the flower garden? And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And then, like, the next day, instead of the kid coming, the father comes and says, I heard you had a job, you needed work. And it makes sense, right? He's a handyman. He wants work, and he's heard about this job. He doesn't know it's just, like, patronizing the child, patronizing a young black kid that these white women were doing he, he thought it was a serious job that needed you know a full you know a real landscape or someone who knows what they're doing so he comes and starts doing the work and of course they're too embarrassed and awkward to to not accept him and they they put and she puts him to work so this woman who hired mr jones then starts getting treated differently around town or at least she perceives that she's being treated differently around town it's not clear if she is or not she's she just complains that she's being treated differently and she thinks it's because she hired Mr. Jones um, and there's a lot of innuendo and gossip obviously in this, in this community um, now then one night uh, a tree smashes up the garden a tree falls and during a storm destroys the garden and she at this point thinks she just should leave the town she should go back to the city again this theme of the city and the countryside and how people really feel out of place when they're in the city versus in the countryside um, Mr. Jones tries to get rid of the tree. He's not very successful. And then finally, the woman says, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to sell the house and let the person, next person who owns it take care of it. So I think the heart of this story, like in um, F, um, After You My Dear All Phones, is this patronizing attitude towards black kids and children in general. And in this case, it she's so sensitive about being perceived poorly that she hires this man that she didn't really want to hire. She didn't really need a gardener. She just wanted to patronize this young black boy. Um, and then she gets caught in that. She can't really undo it because she's too, she's unwilling to really be honest. And, and you know, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness in all of these stories, or at least in many of them. And this is a great example of that, where she really, you know, is unable to really confront things directly. Uh, this kind of pettiness and this superficiality of, of the way people talk, never really getting to the point. And, and that's certainly the case with this Mr. Jones. So our only solution to get out of this mix is actually just to leave town. I mean, it's a pretty dramatic solution to it, but it comes off fairly believable in, in the story. And the last story in part two, um, this is actually, I think, the longest section. It's got uh, seven stories when the others have six. It's called Dorothy and My Grandmother and the Sailors. This was published in 1949 in The Lottery. So uh, quite a few stories in this first half were published first in the lottery. Um, even though I, I think overall it's only about 10 out of 25 were published just for this book. The, the rest of the stories were published in other places first. Um, but this story is really kind of fun. I, I enjoyed this one. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a memoir. It's a, it's a remembrance of the good old days in San Francisco. And it's like every spring... You know, they go out and buy like the spring clothes or something. And so this is retelling like a night on the town with Dorothy, her friend, and her grandmother who go out on the on the on the town. And in addition to buying new coats for the for the next season, they do other things. So in this case, what they do is they visit a battleship because it's San Francisco and there's a ship in port. They visit the battleship and they tour it. I guess these battleships opened up from time to time for people to visit. Uh, during that, the narrator uh, gets lost on the ship and ends up bumping into like someone who she thinks is a captain, but 
later on it suggested maybe this person was a marine it's never really clear what this guy's rank was but he was a soldier and he just helped her find her parents again but there's a overhang of like the the danger of the sailor in throughout this story and this seems to come from the the the, the older generation to the younger generation and i really think that this grandmother must have had some incident or relationship or something going on with the sailor at some point you know maybe she maybe she was a sex worker and she was messing around with sailors maybe she had some other experience with sailors i don't know what it is but there's something really goofy about this older woman and her relationship to sailors because she she sees she paints them essentially as the devil yet for, for some reason they go on this battleship to tour it so later on they go to a movie theater and it's like sold out and so the 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 older people and the younger people just split up um and the two young girls are sitting together and then a sailor or a marine or someone sits next to them or a couple of them and they get horrified they're like what's going to happen to us with these sailors here and the after the movie though they move on and they go get ice cream and at the ice cream shop also sailors move in and that's the climax of the story it's like you know how like jim harris keeps floating through the stories keep coming back um you know i want to say sailors wore blue i don't, I don't know but Jim Harris always wears blue in these stories. Um, but that, that's more or less the story we get in Grandmother Dorothy and My Grandmother and the Sailors. So anyways, that's the lottery, or the first half of the lottery. Only the first half. Um, the first uh, 13 stories. Um, all are really, really good. I don't think any, there's any, I don't think there's any weak stories in here. Maybe the Macy's one is, is, is maybe one of the weakest, but you know, even that is, is, is good on its own right. These are all great stories. They're easy to grasp. They can be read on so many different levels. They're, they're full of ambiguity, if you like that. Uh, they're not straightforward, but they have this really wonderful vibe. I mean, there's nothing supernatural in these stories, but you're always feeling you're in kind of another realm. And that realm is like the, the, the big gap in interpersonal relationships, this inability to connect, the weirdness of social relations, uh, how we feel when we're out of place, like when we are away from our home, uh, when we're in someone else's home, like the, the, the strangeness that comes out of these different day-to-day -day experiences is, it's all described really, really well here. So I, I love these stories, but I'm not done. Uh, obviously there's a whole second half of the lottery that I'll look at, but that has to be reserved for the next episode. So that's what I'll do next time. So if you're reading along, please read the rest of the lottery. Um, and in the meantime, let me know what you think of the Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson, especially the first half, any of the stories I talked about, I would love to hear your opinion on it. So um, thanks for bearing with me. I know this is a long episode, but um, you know I could have said a lot more about all these, I think, but it's, um, it's a good introduction, hopefully. And, and hopefully um, you all can add to the conversation and say more. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can also leave comments below. Um, that will... That's it for now. So I'll see you next time with the second half of the Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson. I guess it just had to be. Won't someone listen to me? I got the words, I got the tune. I'd like to prune it under the moon. But I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm coming.